Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's The Wonky Show, and this week, as the all-important January the 15th UCAS deadline for applications arrives, it's a recruitment special. So that means that applicants might not dare to apply to University X in September, but they might well have been able to get into University X the following August. So, you know, there's complicating factors here around the reputation of universities, around published tariffs. But, you know, when I'm looking at challenges around regional participation rates, I do think it's a, it's a big issue. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Mark Leach, recording from The Wonky HQ in London. This week, in a break to our usual format, it's a recruitment special in association with SMRS. And we have three amazing guests. In Cheltenham, we have Claire Marchant, Chief Executive of UCAS. Claire, your highlight of the week, please. Um, probably on Monday, actually, we announced um, a partnership with Witch. So we've got um, the Witch Uni content on UCAS.com now. So 30 million students able to see that. And that was a, a real breakthrough for us. Um, I thought that was a great piece of content, city guides, etc. All there for students to see. So that, that made me very happy. Uh, in York, we have Dan Bain, Head of Education at SMRS. Dan, your highlight of the week, please. Well, it's actually big in York, I think, on a sunny day in a beautiful city staring at the Minster. I'm up here for the Case Marketing Institute. Um, so there's 40 marketing professionals in HE spending three days learning and collaborating with senior colleagues. So it's an example of the collaboration that's still possible in, in higher education, despite all the competitive challenge we're about to discuss. And in Birkdale, we have Alison Cohen, Director of Marketing at the University of Liverpool. Alison, you're hired to the week, please. Okay, uh, mine I think is both personal and professional this week. It's Children's Mental Health Week um, and I stumbled across my kids talking about some of the activities that we're doing at school, which is both um, exciting, I think, that they're talking about it, but also from a university perspective um, that stu- that that children, my children are eight years old, are, are being taught about this stuff at such a young age and it gives me a bit of hope for, for the future. Great, thanks all. Let's dive right in. Um, UCAS has published data this week for the current application cycle. That's to the 15th of January deadline. Claire, can you can you just talk us through the headlines? Sure. And um, obviously, we're publishing this uh, about 15 days after the January 15th deadline passed. So it takes a, a huge amount of work to pull it all together. Uh, but hopefully, what we've uh, we've given is a, a really sort of short, sharp, uh, easy to access uh, account of 15th of January. Uh, we've got a 1.2% increase in the number of uh, of applications, which I think is really healthy. There's loads of good news in here. Um, you know, I think the application rate particularly um, uh, of 39.5% um, is is really healthy. Um, there's some really interesting uh, trends in there. So I would point to regional differences uh, and you'll see London, uh, their application rate going over 50%. Um, and that compares quite starkly to some places uh, in the, the north of England, but also in the southwest. So I think there's some interesting things that require uh, more uh, analysis and thought. Um, certainly a big story you will have seen is what's happening outside of the EU. So in our non-EU 
new countries applying into UKHE um, and a real testament, I suppose, to, to how world-class UKHE is still seen. So particularly those Chinese and Indian applicants uh, coming through almost a third increase in both of those countries. Um, I think there are some things in there. So it's lots of good news. I think there's some things in there that give us further food for thought. And certainly we at UCAS will be looking at more. Uh, so mature students we've highlighted, but a lot of the increase there is because of the, the nursing increases. And so actually, if you take out the nursing increases, then what is happening uh, with mature students' appetite and demand for uh, coming into higher education? Um, and again, you know, good news in terms of wedding participation, but actually, if you get below that um, decreasing the ratio between most advantaged and most disadvantaged, are there regional differences? Are there differences in terms of tariff uh, sort of type of provider that, that students are going to from most disadvantaged areas? Um, and I think finally for me, it's a, certainly at UCAS, and this is a sort of personal but a UCAS perspective, is what are those routes, what are we giving for particularly UK 18-year-olds as alternatives to traditional higher education and getting some parity of those alternative routes and making those simple and straightforward to apply for. So things like degree and higher apprenticeships is something that will be a big focus for us uh, in the year ahead. And, and January 15th just gives that even more uh, so momentum. So that, that would be my sort of canter through it. Um, we have uh, tried to keep it short and sharp, so it's easy for people to access, but then I provide all these data dashboards that people can, uh, you know, if they're really interested, they can go in and manipulate the data and find out what they, they're particularly interested in. Thanks. And, and as you mentioned, Claire, there, there, there's, some, there's some good news, but definitely some challenges. And some things jumped out at me um, looking at the data over the last 24 hours. One of them was the, the gap between um, women and men um, and, and the growth of uh, those different cohorts. Um, men are now, uh, sorry, women are now 1.4 times more likely to apply uh, than men by the January deadline. What, what's going on there? I mean, it's, it's a well-established sort of trend now. I think my my concern is we get below the sort of macro level trend and we understand what's going on uh, for women and men, even at a subject level. Uh, so if you go below that, and we did do a publication in the summer of last year, which showed that actually you've still got quite traditional choices for women and men within higher education. So women still going very high in terms of education and social work and things like that. Um, and men still outnumbering women in things like engineering, computing. And we have to get below those because because they have uh, very obvious feeds into uh, graduate employability and the sort of salary levels that you might see post-graduation. Um, and then you couple that sort of data with where we are on gender pay gap and things like that. I think it's it's important to get below what is, you know, and I am I am concerned about that gap, but I think it's important also to see what, what those individual groups, those two groups are studying. Um, and that isn't changing. We aren't shifting it. We aren't getting more women into STEM. Um, you know, we are in pockets of the country, but not overall. And so that would be where some of the focus has to start and you know I come from a local authority background you know if you don't start this early years and primary um, key stage two um, you don't make the impact by the time they get to the 17 18 year old in terms of those choices that they make. Dan is there anything that, that jumped out at you in the, from the yeah, data well, this week? Yeah well I mean we've seen quite a variance in in application performance in terms of regional differentiations and reflected in the data um, even within local institutional competitor sets we've seen um, some quite big variances. Uh, I'm interested in the opportunity outside London to increase the the application rate. Um, you know, we've spent a lot of time delivering on on trying to raise aspiration. Um, I just wonder whether in, in parts of the country there's an issue with what happens after we've raised that aspiration in terms of the follow-up support, um, in, in encouraging people to to take the step to apply. Um, do we need to do, do more to encourage participation in particular areas? It feels like the problem is is not that in London. The problem for for institutions would be more around um, converting 
those you know that massive group of applicants um, in, in that place. I was thinking about WP, you know, and and even though there's there's some, it feels like it's it's trying to be a good news story. It still feels like it isn't in terms of those most advantage being you know is it more than twice as likely to go into higher education. So although progress, but I'm not quite. They're ready to see it as, as as particularly positive. So much more needs to be done there, I think. Um, so uh, the other thing I noticed was was January starts for international students were going through the roof um, in terms of, of of applications in all parts of the UK. You know, from the south coast to the Midlands to the north. Um, you know, being uh, you know really growing hugely, and, and and obviously the visa situation will will help with that. So they were a few of the things that that we've noticed um, as an organisation. And and Alison, from your perspective in a in a university, is is does things look on track for the cycle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think as others have said, you know, some of the um, the numbers are really, really positive. I think, I think the the gap, although it's um, not narrowed um, too much, but I think a narrowing of the gap in terms of advantage and disadvantage students is really positive, and, and particularly for a university of like Liverpool, where we we pay a lot of attention to that. Um, the London figures, I think, are, are very interesting, um, and I, I just wonder. And I'm not saying this with any degree of confidence but whether there is any correlation between um you know where parents are located and obviously there's investment more investment um in schools in london um but where um people who have been to university are, are choosing to live and whether there's a knock-on effect um in the north of england perhaps not as many graduates are um are living in some of some of these areas um what i you know do hope is that some of the initiatives that have been put in place in areas like London might might follow through in in the northeast particularly. The uh, third of students wanting to find out about apprenticeships um, I thought was really interesting and I think that's just one for universities to keep a watching brief on in terms of how that plays out and um, what sort of information they're looking for but but also the types of opportunities. Uh, do, do you think, to, to question to, to any of you, do you think apprenticeships, uh, the, the interest in apprenticeships is going to translate into um, real demand in the market um, over, over the next few years? Certainly I do. I think it's a demand and supply thing there. I think, you know, our survey work and we are sitting in National Apprenticeship Week, so done a lot of uh, social media activity this week and getting a lot of interaction from students around that. So I think there is a demand there. I think there's a supply issue in terms of um, understanding how to access that supply. Um, so certainly when I talk to students, and I've probably talked to tens of students each week, um, they uh, f- find it difficult to navigate. Uh, they don't know where to go. It might be uh, very, very different per region. It might be different for SMEs versus the very large employers, some of which have made massive headroads into uh, degree apprenticeships, higher apprenticeships. Um, and so I think there's just something about, particularly for, for us at UCAS, but other organisations to help navigate those students through that. Um, but there's also then making it easier for employers. And I do you know a lot of work with two of the local, local enterprise partnerships, um, where I hear again and again that businesses find it difficult to navigate when they're seeking to supply those apprenticeships. So I think there's a, I think the demand is there. I think there's a huge amount of demand, a huge amount of interest. It's whether we can translate that over the coming years. Um, and, and that will be a question both for government policy, uh, but also for how we, easy we make it for businesses and how easy we make it for students. Yeah, and perhaps universities could play more of a role in terms of helping those um, employers to actually engage with and recruit those apprentices. I think sometimes that model is slightly 
odd in the delivery from comes from the institutions and the recruitment comes from the employers and maybe that um, there's expertise in the universities that could contribute to that um, a bit more effectively I think if we're going to you know raise that number significantly. I think I'd add to that from a from a student perspective I think um, I think there will be more demand over time I think potentially it's a little confusing for students at the outset because the go to university narrative is um, is so ingrained and there's so much work that happens in that space. So for them to truly understand what apprenticeships offer and also, as Claire said, you know, how they navigate the information and they find the right information um, for them. But but certainly, you know, I think it's very welcome that there's an increased focus on this for students and, and they will be a um a more desirable route for students to to get into the careers of their choice. I was just wondering about the modelling of EU um, student numbers. Um, Some people are, you know, modelling for really, really, really significant falls in 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 those i wonder whether they we might still see uh, certain uh, numbers coming from different eu countries that that don't perhaps um need the funding support as much as others um i don't know what whether anyone's you know got a particular approach or experience on that that they might want to share um c- certainly i wouldn't read too much into the 860 falls that we're seeing um on eu and if you look at it on country basis which i'm sure you have it's you know you've got some countries that have gone up significantly and some that have dipped um, and then if you look at it over a, a longer timeline um back to 2016 it's fairly stable and consistent um so i think the and obviously it's it's reasonably uncertain in the medium term as well, uh, depending on how, how this year pans out. So um, I think the, the, the bigger sort of impacts uh, are going to be on the non-EU. Um, it'll be really interesting to see where we end up at the end of cycle because we know, for example, of those that have been that third increase on, on China, um, we know that very often they are applying to other countries around the world. So actually, how many of them actually end up studying in the UK? Uh, maybe much less. Um, I also think there's an interesting piece internationally, and this includes the EU, around where students come from and how they're applying and what choice they're making and when they're making them. And all of that, I think, is, is one to watch during the course of this year. So we're publishing a piece on the 20th of February, which is just on that international community and how they're making decisions. Because as that becomes a more important part of every university's portfolio, understanding that that international cohort is, is paramount. And some universities um, understand it to, to a greater extent than others. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name is Hilary Jebiabubio and I'm the Undergraduate Education Officer at Bristol SU and I've actually written my first article for Wonky all about the use of the term sector leading in higher education and essentially I explore a main premise which looks at whether our institutions are looking to be sector leading which infers and implies an individualised um, view of themselves where recognition, reputation and meeting requirements of the OSS at the centre of the change that they do and the work that they do or if we're looking at institutions being set to achieving where they're looking to create fundamental change that's that's right and necessary for their institutions especially in areas like EDI where some of our most vulnerable groups are suffering because fundamental change is not being made at the rate that it needs to be made. So the politics of offer making has heated up in recent years. Unconditional offers particularly have been all over the headlines. Alison has any of this changed applicant behaviour from your perspective? I think certainly um, from a University of Liverpool perspective, not really. I mean, in terms of offer making, we believe very firmly in transparency and, um, you know, we don't engage, for example, in conditional, unconditional offer making, um, which I know many of uh, universities have done. Um, I think what is possibly, I think, interesting in in what's happening at the moment is as we see um, these kind of tactics continue to rise, but students less likely to accept those, is I think that the um, 
the conversion piece is becoming more important for universities because we are um, certainly um, across the sector less um, able to to rely on the number of applications and, and being able to predict the number of students coming through um, because they're holding such a variety of offers and in, in, in different ways. I mean, Dan, you work with lots of different universities. Are you seeing um, a change in, um, in, in strategy over uh, particularly over offer making uh, this year? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there there, there feels like there is. Um, it'd be interesting. To, we've got obviously nothing in the data at this stage um, on that. Um, you know, I've been fascinated by the defence of CUCs in terms of um, their impact on attainment. Um, I'm not sure that's the the point really um, in, in terms of the way I look about it. Look at it. It might be too early to pronounce on that. You know, the real issue, I think, is that they that can't be the way you want an under pressure 18 year old to choose the place they're going to study for three years. That that feels a bit wrong. Um, so I think that that that's how I, that's how I see that that issue. Um, you know, we saw. I mean, in terms of, of of habits, in terms of application, we saw you know quite dramatic improvements in the week before the window closed, even more so than normal. Um, I don't know whether that was simply down to it being Wednesday, January the fifteenth, um, and having three working days running up to that. Claire, I don't I don't know whether there's any any basis in that, but it was a big shift for some institutions. Yeah, I mean, certainly we were exceptionally busy the three days leading up and quieter that weekend before, just because of where fifteenth of January. Uh, uh, fell this year. I mean, I think, you know, Alison is right. Uh, student views to uh, both unconditionals and conditional unconditionals are varied and changing. And so, you know, when we ask students about unconditionals in the round, um, some of those students um, do do like them. They find it takes the pressure off. Uh, they find they can focus on their studies. Others uh, feel that, you know, a provider or university might not have considered their application fully enough. And so there's very, very views. But I think, you know, importantly, that um, when, when we looked at those conditional unconditionals and the number of students that were taking those up as uh, firm, seeing that big 5% drop uh, last week was, I mean, it's not a trend, it's only one year, but it was a signal that perhaps student views uh, and even parental guardian views on, on, on those types of offers were changing. I mean, I think in a, in a, in a market, and, and HE is, is a market, um, you are uh, going to get, um, you know, whether you call them conversion tactics or, or whether you call them, you know, just ways to get your institution ahead of another one, you are going to get tactics. And and my cautionary note um, is even if conditional and conditionals uh, end up falling, um, either in the offer or the acceptance of those, um, there will be other things that, that go on. So whether that's, you know, a very low grade offer or something like that. So, um, you know, in any market, you'll see different uh, emerging tactics. Um, so that's one to watch. Mm. Okay, what about the, the political pressure, though, on, on the sector over this issue? Do you think the tide is turning? I mean, we've, we've been talking about this for, for, for months now on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there is, I mean, obviously, the Office of Students have come out and, and made statements on this, uh, as well as ministers. Um, I, I, I think, you know, our first indications, as we as we said last week, are that the tide might be turning, on, particularly on conditional unconditionals. But again, there's a cautionary sort of note about that, because it might be turning and other other tactics might be being deployed. And the, and the key thing is, some of those tactics might be in students' interest, but where they are not in the interest of transparency and fairness, and allowing students to make a really considered choice for what, for, for many of them, as we 
all know, is probably the biggest decision of their lives so far. Um, I think that's where we need to be uh, careful um, and, and, and watch what, what happens. So just because one sort of tactic might be on the decline, another one uh, might emerge in its place. The, the, in terms of that um, sort of fairness um, and, and aspiration, one thing that I think we should all be paying a bit of attention to is the difference in tariff requirements dependent on the time in the cycle that someone applies. You know, it, it's going to limit aspiration if you need more tariff points to secure a place at a university during the UCAS application window than you do to get a place at that same institution on exam results day. So that means that applicants might not dare to apply to University X in September, but they might well have been able to get into University X the following August. So, you know, there's complicating factors here around the reputation of universities around published tariffs. But, you know, when I'm looking at challenges around regional participation rates, I do think it's a it's a big issue. So is there a discussion that we should be having around where, even where the university should be ranked so heavily on the basis of what they take in? Um, and should there be more focus on the progression of students and what and the, the student that graduates from from that institution? I just um, I think it's not it's not a level playing field at the moment. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in transparency. And as you know, I sort of see UCAS's role as um, creating as transparent and open um, a sort of system as possible in terms of the, the access to data that we have. I do think there's something that Dan raised at the beginning there, which is about what are the actual actual entry grades that students have got in perhaps over the last you know two three years uh, rather than necessarily what a course is advertised as the, the, the tariff to get into um, and I think that that would be a massive step forward for universities in terms of being uh, very transparent with students about uh, what the offer is which obviously would be a it might be a blended you know course average based on uh, both direct clearing and and in terms of the main scheme but I think there's a step forward we could all do as a sector in terms of transparency around actually what it takes to get onto a course but I take down the second point as well um, about you know ultimately uh, what you graduate with um, is of, of most of most importance. I would I would say I still put my um, A levels on my CV even at nearly fifty eight years of age. So I do think there's something about uh, uh, you know a bit, a bit of balance there. Oh, uh, this 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 debate over kind of input measures and, and knee tables has, has been running for years. It seems to me though um, kind of largely in the gift of universities to ignore the ones if you know if you think that the if you think that it's skewed by basically you know what the tariff tariff points are going in. Um, then you should focus on promoting yourself in in the um, in the in the league tables that just ignore that and, and do focus on um, on outcomes. I wonder if, if any of you got any sense of, of whether per, you know prospective students and applicants and, and parents are are increasingly savvy to that, or, or whether you know the the those you know very prestigious tables that, as I say, include it include tariff points still hold a lot of sway. I, I- I think from my perspective, I think they absolutely do. I think, um, you know, they're quite often an initial reference point um, for students to, to begin their selection in terms of universities that they, they wish to visit in the in the first round of open days. So I, I do think they are still important. Um, I think the dance point around, um, you know, outcomes, I think would be welcomed by a, a many number of universities um, because, you know, looking purely at, at tariff points doesn't truly give you the whole picture of, of uh, what a university is about um, in many respects. So I think that would be, 
really worthwhile looking at for, for league table providers. I, I do think, I mean, I think Alison's absolutely right. I think parents particularly still look at league tables and it's a big driver. I do think if we're thinking about widening participation, uh, what we hear more and more from students is actually, uh, tell me about the experience of a like student uh, at that university studying that course. And that's both uh, most disadvantaged students, but also international students who perhaps can't attend an open day or, or you know, um, have no idea what it's going to be like to, you know, study in the north of England or London or, or whatever. So I think initiatives like, you know, our partnership with Unibuddy, where you can get to message somebody who's done that course at that university or is doing it right now, really, really important. And we're seeing much more of a students valuing that um, over necessary league tables. They still play an important role, um, and particularly for parents and guardians. But I think students themselves want to hear from people like them at that place studying what they are looking to study. And, and there's some of the work we're, you know, the work we're doing around conversion has, has, has shifted actually a lot in the last cycle and a half or so and it's the, the messages that institutions are wanting to send out now quite personalized but they're they're really focusing now on you know will I fit in answering that question to 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 individuals who might be really quite concerned about whether they will be in the right place when they get there and, and sometimes universities have been guilty of, of converting with messages they want to say to somebody and not thinking about it from the, the the lens of what that young person is is worried about at the moment and will I fit in is a big you know factor for people I would suggest hello it's Jim from the team uh, the secret life of students 2020 it's our student experience conference where we'll be doing student experience differently 19th of March London mermaid center uh, got to be there. Um, it's all about doing the student experience differently. We're going to bring together research and intel and review everything we learned about students in 2019 and ask what that means for government and regulators and universities and their students' unions. It's about getting beyond the stale debates and case studies and rethinking the student experience, uh, bringing together experts and sector leaders and managers as well as student leaders and student junior managers to forge a new agenda for students. What does that mean? Well, uh, we'll look at what the new government and the associated regulatory agenda mean for for students. We'll take a look at what major changes to funding the TEF and the National Student Survey could mean for universities and their student unions. Uh, if Generation Z is a generation that treasures fairness, we'll think about how we can respond to strengthen students' rights, how teaching and learning could be changing to adapt to 2020's busy students, and we'll have a think about what student influence and partnership mean in a world of big data. Uh, we'll also ask how we might get beyond the reductive, endless circular debates on free speech and build a culture of democratic engagement on campus. We'll find out what happens when you listen to students on their own terms, and we'll explore what safety means to students and what safeguarding really means. Uh, it's going to be great, an essential event for anyone working on policy and delivery for students. To find out more, you want wonky.com forward slash events, where you'll find details of speakers. The agenda will emerge in the next uh, couple of weeks and details of how to get your ticket. So we've seen a small uptick in applications this year, but we're still in a demographic dip. Dan, tell us how universities are marketing in a, in a shrinking market. Well, it's it's a it's been a challenging few cycles. There's obviously a huge amount of pressure on institutions to to recruit due to their own number forecasts, financial pressures, fierce competition, um, and you see it particularly in in areas like around London, the southwest Wales. There's also big challenges we've been talking about around application rates in in the northeast and areas like that. Um, a key objective, I guess, for us and the institutions we work with has been to generate the right applications, not the most applications. 
Um, you know, universities need to identify and engage with applicants that are right for them and then communicate their institution's own characteristics. And, and where I am seeing universities having success is in using their own detailed cohort data, combining it with wider market data and then building a clear picture of what are realistic opportunities to recruit. Um, so institutions who identify and establish priority segments can then achieve what I, you know, sometimes think of as the holy grail of maintaining and or growing student numbers, even if their application numbers are under pressure or shrinking. And, and one of the things I observe and, and really try and counter is that the answer to this question cannot always be London for everyone campaign to recruit students from London. I see too many conversations with people saying, well, we've got to be, you know, building our brand in London. Um, and these institutions are sometimes trying to grow, you know, market shares that from very small to, to, to much higher. And that's very expensive to do in London. So I think that it's really important that people look at other, other areas of the country at where, where there are students like students that are successful in their institution. And they, they you know, build the right tactics and communication campaigns to talk to those students and engage with those students. I've often wondered about the London question as a, as a Londoner myself, walking, you know, walking on the transport network, particularly on the tube, you see adverts for universities that are, you know, very far away. Uh, and, and potentially, you know, you, you sometimes see, a, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps you're on the circle line that goes to Paddington. So, you know, there's there's an advert for for something in the southwest, um, but things that are much harder to understand. And I always wonder what the impact of those those ads are because they do look really expensive. Yeah, they are, and um and the impact is is you know it varies. I, I guess depending on what the university knows about that potential audience. You know, unis have got stacks of data on the factors that you know contribute to someone enrolling at their institution. So they need to use that to engage with the right groups of, uh, of applicants, ones that might thrive at their institution and not potentially wasting money and time generating, you know, vanity applications, you know, that, that from, from, from individuals who are never realistically going to come to that institution. Now, this shouldn't limit growth. You know, because you can find students like your your students um, in 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 other new markets around around the UK, but it, it you know it has to be sensible to take an approach that doesn't doesn't waste um, money on on those types of situations as you described, Mark. I would absolutely agree with Dan in terms of the channels as well. So it's not just about so t I think targeting is one thing. So understanding rather than broad brush sort of fire hose pipe sort of out there, you've got to target. So you've got to understand your cohorts that are successful, but what channels are using and I would argue for most institutions billboards whether they've been London or elsewhere are less effective than things like you know social media marketing which is very tar you know when you really target there so I think there's something about targeting but also the channels you're using to get that cohort I think also what we find from students more and more is telling stories so going back to that you know here is a student and, and so you know part of our upgrade of all of our content and all our different channels is tell it through a story you know students do not want reams and reams of text-based they 
want an individual telling a story about how they were successful, what the experience was like at that institution. I also think it's hooking in, uh, as Dan said, to individual institutions and what drives choices in terms of uh, particularly conversion for individual institutions. So, for example, we know modules in course, pretty much whether you know, you're know you an international student or a UK student is a very, very big driver um, in terms of choices. Um, but equally, there are other things for individual institutions which might be uh, further up that sort of uh, choice priority list than you might think. So things like accommodation um, and the access to the quality, the um, you know the price of accommodation, uh, things like uh, the the place, the social activities, which I mean that all of those things will appear in the top ten. But where they appear in that top ten for that institution will be very different depending on on who they are. So yeah, I, I tell it by stories, but also really understand students at your university why they make the choice to come there. I think authenticity in marketing, you see much more of that now. You see much more of the student content. You know, students telling the stories rather than people like myself trying to put ourselves in the in the shoes of prospective students and and the rise of um, social media channels as a as a means of attraction not just both both um paid social channels but also your organic content is is very much around showcasing what it's really like for students and giving them all the information available so they can make that that right choice about whether whether they fit within a university that they're they're interested in. I think that's increasingly important and a big focus for for marketing teams. And as in, do you use the data in the same way that that Dan describes? In terms of segmentation and targeting, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think um, you know the fact that within my area we have a market insight and data data science team I think highlights the the importance of understanding the data understanding your own students understanding your applicants and this distinctive characteristics that people attracted to you um, have um, so it does mean that you can you can spend your budget uh, much more wisely in areas where that you're you know it's mo- most likely to have an impact I completely agree about you know none of us have reams of money to to splash on on billboards in in areas where you know we're just doing huge awareness campaigns to to anybody um without it being targeted we have to we have to really understand our students and who we're targeting so that we can you know make the very best use of of the budgets we have available it's um it's interesting the the flip side of that is that you know technology enabled us to reach loads of people um pretty easily um so it created the uh, potential to bombard big audiences with um communication and, and that challenge around over communication i think is a serious one for, for for the sector because that you know if you if you're communicating with lots of people and only some of those are actually relevant for your institution then that's confusing for for, for applicants um, or potential applicants, that's another reason why the you know it's better to concentrate on on realistic and and you know ambitious target audiences um, and personalise that engagement rather than sit there with a credit card on um, social media and and spend inordinate amounts of money um, you know serving ads to to anyone and everyone um, I think you know that personalized applicant journey and student experience as much as possible is 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 crucial and in turn will have an impact on retention you know because that's that's the the other big waste of money for everyone is if you spend all this time, you know, trying to, to get someone through the door and they're the wrong person or they're not supported and and they end up, you know, not finishing that first year, you know, that's that's really difficult for all concerned. Um, you know, most importantly, the, the student. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. 
harder to get into than a number 10 lobby briefing, and much more enjoyable when you do. It's the much-demanded return of Yes But Does It Correlate? Biological science and subject allied to medicines are two closely aligned subject groups. But in 2018-19, does strengths in one necessarily mean strengths in the other? I've plotted the raw numbers of students at all levels at each institution. Yes, but does it correlate? Okay, well, I'm thinking, I think, no, um, it doesn't. Different people, um, they don't necessarily the same people interested in both areas. And I'm wondering where the nursing messes this up in, in terms of that correlation. But, you know, that's, that's my guess. Yeah, I'd probably, it's <laughs> a difficult one, I'd probably agree with uh, Dan on the face of it, because I think it's probably skewed, um, as he says. Um, but I'm, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet my house on it. <laughs> Well, I'm tempted to change my mind now, but I actually think, yes, perhaps it does. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't bet my house on it either. And the answer is no, not really. R squared is 0.25, suggesting a very weak relationship, more likely to be explained by provider size and the similarity between two subject areas. The numbers are taken from the recent release of HESA student open data. Thanks, HESA. And where the data doesn't exist, I have not plotted it. So from next year, we're going to start to see the demographics move up again and huge amounts more of 18-year-olds coming into the system over the next decade. Um, uh, it's something we've been writing about quite a bit on the site for the last couple of years. Um, the, and, and posing a question over and over again is, is the sector ready? Um, are universities ready for that growth? And, and what should universities be doing now uh, to prepare for that decade ahead? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think, well, first of all, although we are seeing that uplift, uh, it is different. I think we do need to remember this in different parts of the country. So, for example, when you look at the demographics in the northeast and the northwest of England, uh, they probably take another year before they start on that uptick, whereas London's still very significant increase next year. So, I think understanding some of that demographic landscape in a bit more detail for individual institutions is quite important. And then in terms of your preparatory point, um, one of the big things when I visit universities, and I'm probably near 100 now that I've gone through the last couple of years, is um, a big focus on developing their physical estate, um, both the, the teaching facilities um, and the accommodation. Um, and actually, I think there's a, a, there's a need and some of the, you can see some of the universities really grappling with this at the moment in terms of their digital estate um, and understanding how they can use their digital estate, not just for the student experience, but in terms of moving some of the ways they teach um, and the access to campus very differently in five, 10 years time. And if you think about potentially many more people coming through their door, um, then I think they, they have to do that. And, and you will know many universities have space constraints as well. So there's a pressure on them to do that. But I also think students expect that. Students expect in this day and age there be to be a blended learning of face-to-face, but also access to things in a very digital, easy easy to access uh, way. So I think for me, the one thing would be the universities that are getting it right are putting digital estate alongside physical estate. Do you think there's a challenge in the UK more than in other markets around the reputation in terms of online learning qualifications and online learning degrees. I, I, I wonder, we work with um, employers as well as universities. I wonder whether they, we've still got a way to go in terms of the, the, the value they place on, on online degrees uh, as, as much as traditional ones. And if we look ahead 10 years and we've got you know, many more young people. The choice is not quite is not between the different types of of education that we need to provide. It is we need to provide all of them, other more of all of them. Otherwise, we will be in a bit of a fix. So I, I don't know whether there's a, a job to do in terms of a reputational 
shift or continued one around online learning but also make, making sure it's blended because I don't think it's an either or you know um, when you expect to study you expect to you know have an element of online an element of face-to-face you know I, I think all of it, it's trying to pull off what it's a very blended sort of channel of uh, channels of learning um, I think is where we need to be but uh, you know and again I, I agree with you in that have we cracked that can we hold up really good cases where we've cracked that blended learning um, and are telling stories so we go back to the point we made earlier about telling stories to students where they've been successful in a blended learning environment um, and a lot lots of universities do do blending learning uh, now but it's perhaps shifting that balance um, towards more more digital online I think is where we need more storytelling yeah I'd, I'd agree with that and I think over the next you know over the next decade I think universities looking at their position and their offering in relation to blended and, and what that means for everything else for the study abroad opportunities for the for the careers um, advice and guidance and the the, the rest of the kind of experience they get from a university and where that fits in and I, I could imagine the model would change quite significantly where you could do more of the the actual learning online you could be engaging with your tutors perhaps in a in a more meaningful way face to face but still using the university environment to to get that much broader experience I, I can imagine the the landscape changing quite significantly so that's about it for this week Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Claire, Dan, Alison and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.